So we continue this journey of looking at weird texts in the Scriptures. Uh, as Pastor Millard pointed out this morning, you know, it, we, as people who take the Bible seriously, have to look at all texts, whether we find enjoyment in them or encouragement from them or uplifting, even those that are strange and unique, we've got to look at. And so over these last several weeks, I've, of course, done a lot more study than normal because I've never preached on any of these texts before. I've taught from them in Bible studies, but I've never preached on them. And this week was kind of fascinating in particular simply because not only the topic matter, but I was fascinated by what some of the scholars said. I read several different commentaries, several different uh, footnotes, and several different Bibles, and I kept running across this one word over and over again. And I'd heard the word before, and I kind of thought that I knew the word, but after about the third time, I thought, you know, you better look this word up, Humbert, because you're not 100% positive you know. Maybe you've heard the word. It's enigmatic. Enigmatic. Have you ever heard that word? It means puzzling or um, perplexing or mysterious. And therefore, you might glean from all of these scholars who've written on this text, Exodus chapter 4, that this is just a weird text. In fact, I'm pretty convinced it's probably the most weird text we will read from throughout the series, uh, not the least of which is because it's when God tries to kill Moses, of all people. Moses is, uh, God attempts to kill Moses, and we've got to figure out why. What is going on here, and what purpose does it have for us? So, are you ready to get started? Yeah? Let's look at this passage. It's in Exodus chapter 4. But before we get there, let me invite you, either later today or maybe tomorrow or Tuesday, go read Exodus chapter 3 and 4. That's the second book in the Bible, Exodus chapters 3 and 4. There you'll find the call of Moses and his response to that. And some of you may remember this, but Moses gets called by God. God literally shows up on the holy ground when he's out uh, tending the sheep, and God says, I need you to go take care of my people Israel. They're in slavery and bondage in Egypt, and I need you to go. And if you've read that text, you will remember Moses offers up no fewer than five excuses I don't know what I'm going to say. I'm not a good speaker. Uh, people won't listen to me. Who are you, by the way? And they're going to want to know who you are, and I just don't want to do it, right? Moses offers up all kinds of excuses, but ultimately Moses takes up the charge to go back to Egypt, where he was originally from, to set the Israelites free. And in the midst of all that, we look further into Exodus chapter 4, and we see that not only has Moses agreed to do this, but just to make sure, he wants to ask permission of his father-in-law Jethro, whose flock he's tending. So late in the uh, chapter 4, he says, hey, Jethro, would it be all right if I, you know, God's come and talked to me and called me, and, and I, I hope that it would be all right if I just leave the sheep out. Would that be fair? Jethro gives him permission. And then as if that weren't enough, then he turns to God again and says, uh, golly, God, are you sure this is what you want me to do? Are you sure this is where I'm supposed to go? To which God responds. Exodus 4, verse 19. God says to Moses there in Midian, I need you to go back to Egypt because those people who are after you or want to kill you, they're dead. And so without saying it, God is saying, it'll be safe. This will work. All will be fine. And then we get to the verses that I'm going to read from now. Exodus chapter 4, beginning in verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, 
See that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. I said to you, Let my son go that he may worship me, but you refuse to let him go. Now I will kill your firstborn son. It's a clear message that God wants to send through Moses to the Egyptians, God's in control, God is in charge. Then verse 24, where the enigmatic begins. On the way, at a place where they spent the night, the Lord met him and tried to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, truly, you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So God let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood by circumcision. Friends, once again, this is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Yeah, it feels just a little weird to say that, doesn't it? But it is the Word of God, and it is for us, and there is some wisdom in all of this, as strange as it sounds, right? So let's try to figure this out just a little bit. So God has this dialogue with Moses, right, to help him best understand why he's about to leave. And he sets a great table for Moses and for us to understand that the firstborn child of any family, any household, is important. The firstborn son, in particular, is vitally important to carry on the name, uh, to carry on the business, to inherit half of the inheritance. All the other brothers get to split whatever's left, right? The firstborn child is important, God says. And God goes on to say, by the way, Egypt, I just need you to know that Israel, the Hebrews, they are my firstborn child. You and I would call them the chosen people of God, right? And in fact, they are the chosen people of God. Scripture tells us that over and over again. And through them, we are heirs to the fortune. They are our progenitors, the Hebrew nation, right? For we followers of Jesus. And so they are important. And God wants Moses to portray that to the Pharaoh to say, you killed my firstborn child. Metaphorically, of course, but they're under slavery. They're in bondage. They are oppressed. And therefore, they're as good as dead, might maybe. And then finally, God says to Moses to tell Pharaoh, I'm now going to kill your firstborn child because of all that you have done wrong. And that's a powerful word, and it's a foreshadowing word for what you and I know as the Passover, the Exodus, the event that makes it possible for the Israelites to go free. We call it Passover because, of course, in Scripture, it talks about how uh, the evil one passed over those whose side doorposts were marked with the blood of the slaughtered lamb. And he's acknowledging that that's yet what to come. I need you to put a pin in that because that's going to be important as we move through the rest of the text. God is foreshadowing. So, then uh, Moses determines, I'm going to take my family. We didn't read it, but in verse 20, the sons go with him, and, and his wife Zipporah goes with him, and it's important that they know that they're going to save the Israelites. In fact, it's a, a, a fulfillment of what God had already said earlier in Exodus, 
In Exodus chapter 2, verse 24, God had said, I hear their cry, meaning the uh, Israelites, I hear their cry. And literally, God remembered the covenant that God had established with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so, God wanted them to know, go and do this thing. It will be important that you save my people, my firstborn children, right? He goes out into the wilderness. He, he goes out at night. He spends the night, in fact, initially. And it almost reflects on what Jacob had done, his earlier progenitor, right? Jacob had gone out and, and found at the river Jabbok and even at, later at Penuel in Genesis chapter 32. And in each of those occasions, Jacob had a mysterious encounter with God. Jacob had a life-transforming experience with God, a hip broken at one point and a prayer that didn't make no sense until he'd woken up. And a part of what we begin to see is um, our early faith tellers are helping us to connect dots with all of the players of the story. And Moses is about to have a life-changing encounter with God, isn't he? So then we show it. This next verse, verse 24, is the weirdest verse in Scripture, I'm convinced. Verse 24, and God tried to kill Moses. And, and I don't know about you, but, I mean, I've read that over and over again many times, and every time I read it, I have to pause and go, what? God tried to kill Moses? I mean, Moses is going to save your people, God. Moses is going to do what you're sending him to do, God. What is this that you're doing, God? Why would you try to kill Moses? It makes no sense. And to make it even more weird, in the original Hebrew, uh, there are no names listed, and the, the pronouns that are identified in the Hebrew, it makes it seem like we can't really tell if God is trying to kill Moses or Gershom, his oldest child. That just makes it more weird. And then if you're like me, I ask lots of questions. I don't know if you're a question asker, but I grew up asking questions. I used to drive my teachers crazy asking questions in class. Every once in a while, they'd call me out and say, Daniel, you're asking too many questions. Kay says the same thing to me every once in a while. You're asking too many questions. Here's my question. How does God just try to kill Moses and not succeed? I mean, God pretty much everywhere I read in Scripture, God succeeds at whatever God's trying to do. But here, God simply tries to kill Moses and is not fully successful. And I just have to ask, why is that? Well, we're about to get there, and it's fascinating. Moses is saved by his wife, Zipporah, through a simple action that she performs that quite literally to you and me in modern-day time seems a little horrid, and a lot weird, right? So right here on the spot, as God is trying to kill Moses, Zipporah whips out a flint. You got a flint handy with you? She pulls out a flint and she circumcises her son Gershom, and then she takes the foreskin and she touches it against Moses. And all of us think to ourselves, whether aloud or in our pointed little heads, what? What is this? What's going on here? And why am I having to read this? And why is this happening? And how strange is this, right? I mean, when you heard me read that, did you not? Every man in the room winced. Because <laughs> it's weird, but it's necessary. It's needful. And it fulfills God's promises as weird as it sounds and seems to us. Stick with me just for a minute. So here's what we know about Moses. 
Moses was born in Egypt under slavery, right? In such a way that the Pharaoh had already commanded that every male Hebrew child should be killed. And Moses is saved, remember? Go back and read uh, Exodus chapter 2. Moses at the age, uh, at a very early age, right after he's born, his mother cherishes him. His mother wants to save him, so she hides him for three months. Do you know what it's like to try to hide a one and two and three-month-old child in a community where everybody lives together or right next to each other? It's almost impossible. It's why she put him at month three in a, wicker, in a basket and put him into the Nile to save him. What Scripture does not tell us, but which now makes a lot more sense, is that if at day eight, as is the custom for male babies to be circumcised, he couldn't be circumcised because you know what happens at a circumcision of an eight-year-old boy? Ah! Has anybody ever been to a bris? The baby cries, and rightfully so. Thank you very much. So he couldn't have been circumcised because she's trying to hide him, and if they got discovered, he would get killed. So Moses is not circumcised. Fast forward to the birth of Gershom, their oldest boy, their firstborn son, and they're now in Midian. That's where he escaped to, right? That's where Moses went to. And he's working with his father Jethro uh, in his uh, flock, and, and it's a different country, and it's a different faith base, and, and uh, uh, Zipporah doesn't follow the faith either. And so guess what? Gershom doesn't get circumcised either. And to you and me, this is not a huge deal. I mean, people go back and forth medically in today's world, whether or not this should happen, hygienically, whether or not this should happen. This is not about any of that. This is about faith. This is about commitment. This is about initiation into the faith. The covenant that God had established with Abraham from the very beginning was based in circumcision. And if I am not circumcised, I am not a part of the faith. Listen to how it comes up in Genesis chapter 17. God is speaking to Abraham and establishing that the covenant will be through him and for him, and it's established like this, Exodus 17, I'm sorry, Genesis 17. You must cut off the flesh of your foreskin as a sign of the covenant between me and you. So important is this that just three verses later in verse 14, it says, any male who fails to be circumcised will be cut off from the covenant family for breaking the covenant. Guess what? Moses is not circumcised. Gershom is not circumcised. They are therefore then no longer a part of the covenant. And therefore, they can't go on. In fact, God's trying to cut them off from the covenant by killing him right there. It's all to fulfill God's promises, but God's not yet done because God knows Zipporah, and God knows that even though she's not a part of the faith, she wants to commit to the faith, and so she steps up. Circumcision is foundational. It's hard for you and me to imagine that. But it is to the Hebrew nation what baptism is to us. It is what calls you a Christian, baptism. It is what claims you for the journey, baptism. And it is what helps us to know that we're a part of the covenant of God. That's what circumcision was to the Hebrews. And so you must be circumcised as a man in order to be a follower of God, the chosen people in the Hebrew nation. So now, when Zipporah 
circumcises Gershom, and then she takes the foreskin and she touches Moses. He is now symbolically and spiritually circumcised. He is now prepared. He is now ready to go to Egypt. He is now all in. He is now committed to the cause. He is now prepared to do what God intended for him to do from the beginning. You see, all the weirdness, it's now set aright. All of the enigmatic nature of the story begins to make a little bit more sense. And it makes now even more sense because Zipporah is one of several women in Moses' life who would save him and in so doing save the Israelites, save God's desire, save God's people, and in turn allow you and I to become followers of Jesus Christ. It's all in the works. You know, there were several women who saved Moses. Even Shipra and Puah, the midwives, who were saving the baby Israelites before Moses was born, they helped save him. You know, they tell that story to the, to the Pharaoh when he says, how are all these Hebrew women giving birth to all these boys? And, and Shipra and Puah say, you know those Hebrew women, they're strong. They can push them out before we get there, and therefore we can't find the boys. They're saving Moses' life. And Jacobed, his mom, who at three months has the courage and the fortitude to save her boy by pushing him into the Nile and dreaming and trusting that God would provide, she saves his life. And his sister Miriam, who knows the plan and who connects with that basket and touches it to the Pharaoh's daughter so that he'll be raised in the Pharaoh's house. Moses is surrounded by women who save him, who provide a way for him to understand that he is God's chosen and will help God's chosen to be saved. What a precious gift. And then she ends the story by making the comment, you are now the blood groom of circumcision. And that's a harsh word, right? I mean, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense except that that blood from that foreskin of Gershom now marked Moses for God to pass over. Remember the pin? Moses will now be passed over and not killed, just like God would tell the Hebrews in Egypt, mark your doorposts with the blood of the slaughtered lamb so that when God comes, God will pass over and not kill you. That's Exodus 12, verse 13. The blood will be the sign, and you'll mark your doorposts, and that my eye will pass over that house. And so this weird story is leading to the Passover, and it's leading to an understanding that God had a great design from the very beginning, and it's all centered on, strangely and enigmatically enough, on blood. And blood to you and me is, you know, kind of awkward and weird. We know the biology of blood and we know that life comes through blood, right, biologically, but this is God's spirit blood. This is God calling us into the sacrifice of blood that eventually would become Jesus's blood. But we look all the way back in this book called Leviticus. I know it's your most well-read book, but it is important. And in chapter 17 of Leviticus, it gives us the perfect example and understanding of this mark of the blood. 
For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you for making atonement for your lives on the altar. For as life, it is the blood that makes atonement. And so to this very day, we know that it is the blood of the Lamb of Jesus that helps us to atone for our sins. It is the blood of circumcision that helped the Israelite nation enter into covenant with God. It is the blood of our Lord and Savior who washes away the sins of the world. You see, in the blood is the life. And Moses' life was saved this day to fulfill the covenant of God that was first established. Isn't it fascinating that even a small, seemingly insignificant and clearly weird Scripture text has such authority and such power. And so Moses goes to confront the Pharaoh, and he conquers the Pharaoh, and he sets the Israelite people free because everything has been fulfilled as God planned. Well, fair enough. Good stuff, right? But then if you are like me, you have to ask the question, well, so, so what? I mean, what does that have to do with me? And what does that do to us? And how do we live this out? And I just want to offer three quick ideas. One is simply this, that God makes and keeps covenant always. God is a covenant maker and a covenant keeper. And every time God establishes a covenant, whether it was with Noah or whether it was with Abraham or whether it was with Moses or whether it's through Jesus, every time God establishes a covenant, God's going to keep it. Every once in a while it might get a little challenging, might get a little weird, but God's going to keep it and God's going to make it happen and God's going to bring it to fruition. And all we get to do and all we need to do is hang on for the ride because it's going to get fulfilled and that's what happened this day. The second is also true. Covenant brings life. The covenant that was established through Noah brought recreation of the world. The covenant that was established with Abraham became a family of many nations and gave life to the world. The covenant that is established through Jesus with his new covenant of the new blood and of his body offers life, and not just any life, but life abundant and life eternal. You see, covenant making from God to us always brings life. And finally, I think it portrays for us that covenant is always worth it. It's worth the energy and the effort. It's worth even the weirdness in the ride. <laughs> it's worth even the extra stuff that doesn't always make sense. It's worth even the enigmatic parts of life that are weird and mysterious and, and perplexing because God's in the covenant. God has made the covenant, and God's going to help us even when it doesn't always make sense. Because any covenant that we enter into with God is always worth it and always makes sense in the end. I'm grateful that God is a covenant maker and keeper, that God provides life through the blood of the Lamb, and that God helps us even when we are afraid to keep moving forward. Thanks be to God that we have this covenant maker and covenant keeper. Will you pray with me? Holy and loving God, thank you for the gift of your covenant making with us, for the further gift that you always keep your promises. Help us, Lord, to live most fully into that, to be encouraged by that, and to know 
that your most precious covenant, born through your child, Jesus, your firstborn child, that is true and real. Help us, Lord, to follow him, to live for him, and to share him every single day. And through that, we will find life, and it will always be worth it. Thank you, God, for the precious gift of your son, Jesus, in whose name we now pray. Amen. Friends, let me offer to you my gratitude as I do every week. Your generosity helps change lives. Your generosity helps fulfill God's promises. Your generosity helps make God's covenant real in the world. Thank you for making that possible. If you brought a gift with you today, we're grateful, and you can, of course, drop it in the brown boxes that are right at the white posts as you exit. Or you can scan the QR codes that are on the screen, or, of course, you can text the letters TM. UMC to the number 45777. But whatever you give, we're grateful. Thank you.